This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. I'm Glenda Geek from Ocala, Florida. And I am Sarah Evers Conrad from Lexington, Kentucky. And you are listening to the monthly Horse Illustrated episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for August 24th. This is a special episode of Horses in the Morning every fourth Tuesday of the month brought to you by Horse Illustrated Magazine. Good morning, Horse World. The fourth Tuesday of every month is all about your passion for horses. Nurture your knowledge with informative and entertaining interviews brought to you by Horse Illustrated Magazine. On today's show, we will be talking with Greg Otson from Tex Sutton Equine Air Transport about flying horses domestically, along with international eventing superstar Buck Davidson and author and attorney Milt Toby about using equine photography. It's going to be a fun show today, and I wanted to mention if you hear a little background noise, it's because we are at a campground in the mountains of Pennsylvania, the Allegheny Mountains in Bedford, Pennsylvania. So we're coming to you from the RV. Now, uh, Sarah's not in the RV, but I did get to see Sarah. We got to see each other a little bit ago. So yeah, in, Lexington. It, it seemed it was a few weeks ago, and it was it was so great to see you guys. It's in a way, it seems like it was a couple of days, and in a way, it seems like it was a month. Uh, I have no idea when it was. We've kind of lost track of time on this trip. I know that we're just past the halfway point, so we are just past halfway as we're recording this, and uh, we're looking we're looking forward to more stops. And we're going to be in Maryland, more in Pennsylvania, and then Virginia and North Carolina. We have a lot more stops to go. And thank you to everybody who's been coming out to, to the meetups. We are appreciate it. And you, you know what caught me yeah. off guard about the meetups when I, when I went to the Lexington one is that people came from Tennessee and I know you interviewed the one lady that works at um Dolly Parton Stampede which yep. oh my gosh she she's drove got 3 hours. <laughs> so, yeah, I know. Yeah. And then uh people from Indiana. So, you know, we had a like tri-state area thing going on there. Yeah, it was cool. And that's been happening everywhere we go. So we haven't had huge crowds, which we didn't expect because our audience is spread out across the whole country. That's one thing about other podcasts. If they tend to be city-centric, you know, they tend to be more of an urban audience. Then when they go to a city, they get larger crowds. But when we go to these rural areas, you know, everybody's so spread out. So I've been happy that we've had the ones that we've had, and we have our biggest ones coming up. The Maryland and Virginia ones will be our biggest ones. So we're, and we have a wedding in there too to go to for our niece. So we got a lot to do yet. But uh, you have a daily winnie, right? Yes. All right, let's get to the daily winnie. Speaking of special events, I would like to do a daily winnie to my son, who will be ten on the twenty sixth of August. Happy birthday! Let's play the happy birthday music for your son. Happy birthday! Xander. Well, since we last had an episode, of course, we had all the drama with the Olympics. And I think what made it special for me to see all the Olympics this time was the fact that I have talked to a few of the athletes over the years and also that we interviewed Stefan. So I had someone, you know, to root for. Of course, I was rooting for all of them. But to see Stefan get his medal and to know how important it was to him was really special. And of course, you know, team silver for both dressage and show jumping, which I love show jumping always have. And even though eventing didn't get a medal, Oh my gosh, you know, they have in the past. And I think the competition was just really tough this, this year. Yeah, I agree. And, I, you know, I was thrilled. If we if we walk away with two silvers in the United States, uh, especially in the competitions that are usually dominated by the Europeans, we're doing pretty well. Yeah. So <laughs> we're doing pretty well. Well, and uh, as busy as it was over those few weeks, and we were slammed, we did daily coverage 
on our website. So if anybody wants to go back, if they missed anything, there are scores, there are daily updates from a photographer and writer team that we had over there. Uh, Kim and Alan McMillan did a fabulous job for us. So everybody can find that on our website at horseillustrated.com slash Tokyo hyphen Olympics. Another thing that we've been super busy with. So the Olympics faded. And since then, both me and our editor, Holly Kakamis, have been so slammed going through all of the ideas from dozens of freelancers that we have right for the magazine and the website. And there are so many ideas. We're planning for our 2022 issues already because if you don't know, when you work on a magazine, you have to work way in advance so that they are published and come out on time. And so we're already thinking about 2022 and it's August, so it's kind of crazy, but we've been busy working on the 2022 topics. And so if you're interested in reading any of those great ideas that people sent in, you can stay tuned for a bit to find out about our special offer that we have just for podcast listeners. All right, very good. And this episode is brought to you by the title sponsor, Straight Arrow Products. Mane and Tail's newest premium product line, Ultimate Gloss, will leave your horse's mane, tail, and coat with an award-winning shine. If you are looking for a formula that gets down to the skin, releasing dirt, dander, and buildup from your horse's coat, then Ultimate Gloss is your go-to bathing solution. Made with natural ingredients, Ultimate Gloss provides a gentle way to leave your horse with a high-gloss, long-lasting shine. Discover the secret behind the boss of the gloss by visiting the website at ultimategloss.com. That's ultimategloss.com. Well, let's get to our first guest because we have a lot of fun guests today. And we're going to speak with Greg Otson, who is the sales manager at Tex Sutton Equine Air Transport. Tex Sutton is the leader in North America in the field of safe, efficient, and timely travel of both race and show horses to all major venues. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for having me today. So I tell us a little bit about Tex Sutton Equine Air. Are you guys international, domestic, both? Uh, we are only domestic. Uh, we occasionally will fly some horses into Mexico or Canada, uh, but everything is pretty much North American. Gotcha. And of course, all of us have now, in the last couple of weeks, seen the videos of the horses flying to Japan, and the, the, it seems like there's been endless coverage of that lately. Um and it's kind of cool to see it, and a lot of most people have never seen how a horse gets on the plane and, and does all of that stuff. So when when you're dealing with somebody that's brand new to having to ship their horse, I assume you're just walking them through everything every time. Um, we do, and you know, there's usually a lot of questions for a first timer, and basically. The whole process is not a lot different than getting on a, a van or a trailer and going somewhere. Um, I don't think the horses know that they're up in the air. Um, obviously, costs are different. Um, and rather than just getting on one trailer and um, landing or arriving and getting off that trailer, you use a trailer to get from the barn to the airport and then transferring to, to the aircraft. And obviously, when you land at the destination, you have another trailer there waiting to take them to their final destination. So one of the questions I've always had when the horses actually get on the plane, um, you know how our ears pop? And I know this is a dumb question, but does that happen to horses? It does. Um, I've noticed many horses that I've flown with in the past will tend to yawn and kind of turn their head sideways. And I've always assumed and talked to a lot of people that feel that they're trying to just uncork their ears a little bit. Well, and the, one, uh, the other thing that I've heard people ask before is, does the noise bother them? But then, you know, they're in a horse trailer. It's, things are pretty noisy back there, too. I would say, other than um, takeoff, it's probably quieter than a horse van. I would agree with um, you. And probably as, less as rocky. Whole, whole. And they're probably not moving as much, either. Correct. Yeah. Correct. You know, not as, you know, they're, they're not really turning, you know, when they taxi out you know, there's some turning and taxiing back in. Uh, and when they're flying and everything, the, the pilots know there's horses on board and they do everything very, very gradual. So, 
you know, knowing that, you know, if they bank hard or, um, you know, take off and ascend too fast, it's going to, you know, throw the horses down. So the pilots are real good about that. Is there ever situations where the horses freak out, turbulence, or, you know, do you just, I know you have grooms back there. We do. We have professionals that fly with them. And uh, most of the time, horses will give us an issue right after they've been loaded. They just, they get in the uh, airplane and in the stalls and they just look around and go, wow, this is just too tight for me. Mm. Um, I would say, you know, a horse would tend to be a little claustrophobic or whatever, but really, quite honestly, we, we have very few problems. Um, but, you know, we we do have tranquilizers on board in case uh, they need a sedation, but don't need that very often. You know, it's probably, it's that same, it sounds the same as hauling them, right? I mean, they have the same problems when you're hauling them. It's the same, it's the same issue in the trailer. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and probably less problems because, you know, the time spent is, is a lot, lot less. Now, do you keep it you cooler know, gonna, in there than you would for humans? Yes, very much so. We, we keep the cabin, we try and keep the cabin around 50, 55 degrees. Okay. Um, because the horses generate, you know, the minute you shut the door, they start generating a lot of heat. You know, the same as if you were to close up, close up a trailer or close up a barn. So we, we do try and keep it very cool. And so now you're, the other thing I found interesting in one of the videos I watched recently was if you've got stallions and you've got geldings and you've got mares, they'll put the stallions at one end of the plane and the mares at the other end of the plane. Do you have to deal with that kind of loading situation as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. We always try and put the stallions in front of the mares. Um, quite often, we'll put a stallion next to a gelding. That's the most ideal situation, you know, rather than have a, a stallion and a stallion or um, a stallion and a mare. So typically stallions and gildings would be up front um, and the mares would be behind them or fillies. Now I had read an interesting story that in this is a little different than horses. You all had flown dolphins. I have to ask about that. <laughs> did you all fly dolphins and yep. how did that work? So what we did is we, we, we took the doll system off the airplane and the, uh, we flew six dolphins from Oakland to Phoenix and the people that, um, it was going to, a, an aquarium there from one aquarium to another, they had these special tanks that were slightly longer and slightly wider than a dolphin. And wow. they had like, a um, they had a thing that like a, some sort of a belt that kind of supported the, the dolphins. And then they had, they did have water in the tank, but it wasn't full. And they, the attendants that flew with them, uh, just kind of kept putting water up on them, you know, just keep them cool, um, keep them wet. And they were happy. Yeah. They, they did real well. And it was a short flight, so it wasn't too bad. Well, have y'all done any other like different kind of animals like that? Well, so the novel tech set, uh, we'll, occasionally, we'll occasionally have a, uh, a baby cow or something on, on board. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've actually had a couple pigs on there, but I worked for another company previously. It was called Instone Air and we flew, um, zoo animals, uh, ostriches, a lot of cattle, a lot of pigs, um, just pretty much anything you could imagine. Elephants? <laughs> I'm sorry. Any elephants? I haven't. Now I've heard. Um, <laughs> I, I I was at, at FedEx in Denver the other day, and was talking to a ramp agent, and they they had just moved an elephant um, wow. recently. I can't so, imagine. Yeah, just about anything you can imagine. Do you have to worry about weight distribution on the plane? Like, I mean, you basically have to worry about that when there's humans in. I assume you have to worry about that when you're carrying cargo. Uh, yes, it's a big consideration, um, especially depending on, you know, the routing, uh, the fuel load, how much equipment's with the horses, uh, you know, how many horses. Um, there's always a, a load factor that's um, running, the, running the weights and making sure everything balances out correctly. 
So yeah, that's a very, very important thing. And there's, there's situations to where, you know, we've been, had to limit loads and whatnot, uh, but through experience, you can kind of spot those well ahead of time. Um, knowing that you might be limited on a certain routing or have to add a fuel stop or something just to, you know, get everything to, uh, weight balance to work out. Now, do you all provide like in-flight meal service and things like that? And and also, I'm curious about grooms. Do you allow the horses' personal grooms to be on board? So at, at present, we're we're just running on the on the FedEx flights, and we can only put two professional grooms on per flight. And um, they uh, they stay with the horses the whole time. And they provide um, hay and water for them. And the hay is not really to, you know, necessarily because they're hungry. It, it actually just kind of gives them something to do and, you know, munch on and uh, think about, you know, eating rather than, than flying. That's what I like to do when I fly. I'd rather eat. Than- <laughs> yeah. Gra- gra- it's called grazing, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, if there was something that uh, so, that you were going to tell new people that you know that never flown before, but they have to fly their horse for the first time, what would it be? That it's really not a lot different than than going by ground. You know, um, you do hear. You know, people have rumors. You know, oh gosh, what happens when the horse freaks out? Is the pilot going to shoot him and, and things like that? I've heard these crazy <laughs> stories, and um, you know, just it just doesn't happen that way. And 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 like I said. Most of the time, if there's going to be a problem, it's going to happen right when you load them, um, and they'll give you the indication that you know this is this is too tight of a space for me or uh, whatever. And in that case, a lot of times we have options to put them in a bigger stall, which will alleviate a lot of that. And probably, you know, we we average over you know 2,500 horses a year, 2,000 to 2,500 horses a year. I would say I can count them on my hand easily the ones that we've said, you know what, we, we called the owner and we just recommend this guy doesn't fly today. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, we'll try them later and, you know, we'll have them work with them a little bit uh, and they're fine. Um, we, we do fly a lot of babies that have never even been off the farm before. Their, their first trailer ride is going to the airport. Those, those little guys, um, I would say, that's probably where most of the ones were that have a tendency to um, have problems. And, and, you know, we just, like I said, we'll send them home and say, you just need to work with them a little bit, bit, you know, maybe haul them a little bit. Um, But overall, 99% of the the horse population, it's just no different than going by road. And it's a lot less stress on them to get, you know, from Los Angeles to New York uh, in five hours versus, you know, five or six days. Before we wrap, there's something that I thought too that uh, I've heard, I've seen people ask is how do they book it? How do you know? We know we all know how to book a flight for ourselves, but how do they book a flight with you guys if they want to use Tech Sutton? What do they do? Well, we have um, we have four agents that, that work for Sutton, and we're all it's all on the website. You can either book uh, you know through one of our phone numbers or by email. Uh, or by text. I have a lot of people that will set up a text chain and, and, and they don't like to talk. We just set it all up by text. So uh, we try and make it as user-friendly as possible. And if you go on the website, if you go to techsutton.com and go to flight schedule, it actually shows you what flights are going out from where to where. And you guys cover a lot of cities, actually, here. So you'll be able to see if, if there's an airport and a flight going out near to where you need to go. Uh, but it's all right there on the website. And from what I'm seeing, it's, you, you pretty much have the next month's flights right right on there. Yeah, but and we, we're adding adding them all the time. And if someone, and if, if a customer calls and, you know, needs, needs a different routing that's, we've already got scheduled, they're, they're pretty easy to, to get on the board and get them going. So. All right. Sounds yeah. good. Go ahead, sir. Well. Oh, I was just curious how many, yeah. how many airplanes you have? Cause I know you have uh, your dedicated aircraft is called air horse one, which I think that's really cool. Um, but what, how many planes do y'all have? Well, right now we're, we're um, 
in the process of uh, getting another Air Horse One. Uh, we're kind of between contracts uh, for the airplane that we normally use, and we're using utilizing the FedEx uh, scheduled service system right now. Um, so basically, you know, basically we use one most of the time, and then and then use the FedEx flights uh, to fill in the gaps. Gotcha. Very good. Very cool. It's TexSutton.com is where you can find all the information there if you want to fly your horse. I know we've had a couple of listeners recently that have bought horses at auctions and had to fly them for the first time. So uh, check it out. Thanks, Greg. Thanks. Thank you. I appreciate your time. And again, this episode is brought to you by title sponsor, Straight Arrow Products. Mane and Tail's newest premium product line, Ultimate Gloss, will leave your horse's mane, tail, and coat with an award-winning shine. If you are looking for a formula that gets down to the skin, releasing dirt, dander, and buildup from your horse's coat, then Ultimate Gloss is your go-to bathing solution. Made with natural ingredients, Ultimate Gloss provides a gentle way to leave your horse with a high-gloss, long-lasting shine. Discover the secret behind the Boss of Gloss by visiting our website at ultimategloss.com. All right, very good. And you guys have a special uh, subscription offer just for our listeners, which is so cool. We have special rates posted on our website for a Horse Illustrated magazine subscription in any format. So whether you want print, digital, or a combo subscription of both. Plus, if you'd like to get our sister publication for a special kid in your life, we also offer special rates on Young Rider magazine which is the horse magazine for tweens and teens ages 8 to 15. So check out our website at horseillustrated.com slash HRN for special rates designed for you, our podcast listeners. And there are there are special rates, so take advantage of it. If you're not already getting the magazine, head on over to horseillustrated.com slash HRN. It's a cool bonus that they're doing that for us. And our next guest is somebody that uh, you've heard here on the show before. Our next guest, Bruce R. Buck Davidson Jr., made his U.S. team debut in eventing at the 1999 Pan American Games with Pajama Game. And since then, he has competed in the 2010 and 2014 Alltech FEI World Equestrian Games. He's also a three-time USEF CCI five-star eventing national champion. And Buck and his wife, Andrea, run BDJ Equestrian and have two daughters, Aubrey and Ellie. And Sarah, before we get to Buck, we did want to mention that he had a slight cold when we talked to him. So he's not dying of COVID or anything. He just had a slight cold. and that. And But he was still so kind to come on the show with us. He could have canceled and he didn't. That's the kind of guy Buck is. So thanks, Buck, for hanging in there. Well, welcome to the podcast, Buck. Glad to be on it. <clears throat> well, I'm glad you could fit this in your schedule. And uh, we're just going to jump right into the questions. Um, one thing I've always wondered, and also our editor was also wondering, um, you're known for riding a bunch of horses at competitions. And I was wondering, what's the most you've ridden in one day? Honestly, I have really good people that uh, behind me. And, um, you know, <laughs> hopefully hopefully those days are uh, are done <laughs> as far as riding that many. I think I, I had one one year at Rocking Horse, I think I... I did 15 in a, in in a one day. No, had, really? Goodness. And, Holy crap! And then I had two two others um, in a uh, that did two phases. So I think I did 49 rides that day. Oh. Um, oh and, uh, what was it like getting uh, out of bed the next day, Buck? Honestly, if if I was riding 15 or I was riding five, I'd be riding the same amount, you know. Mm. And so, um, you know, it's a it's a heck of a lot more work for the people that you know that work for me. Um, and, you know, they have to be super organized and, um, it, it was fine. And, you know, yeah, you, the next day you're all right. A couple of days later, you sort of go, you know, you, you know, all of a sudden got a, you know, twinge in your shoulder or your neck or something like that. But, um, you know, it's, uh, more because it would be early in the season and you wouldn't have done as many, but, you know, quite honestly, it's easier than, than a day at home because you'd have to ride them every day or all, you know, every day at home anyway. And, then you have to teach lessons and do all that kind of stuff. And so at least at an event, you just kind of ride. And um, in, in some ways, it's easier than a day at home. That's like a full-time job just for whoever you had um, entering all those horses. There are people that do that, have that job. 
<laughs> and so it is literally a full-time job for different people. Yep. Wow. Well, a lot of our readers always ask us about dealing with fear. And I think, you know, that's, that's a big thing with the venting, like people that think they go into it, you know, are they adrenaline junkies or, you know, do they deal with fear as they get started and whatnot? Do you ever get scared at this level or? Um, no, I mean, the, I mean, I think everybody gets nervous, right? Like nervous right. is a good thing, you know, but scared is, if, if you're scared, you shouldn't do it. I had a few falls in my day and, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the way I, the way I deal with it and accept it and, you know, kind of, you know, remain kind of okay with the whole thing is like, I put it all on me and, you know, look at what I did. And at no point is there any fault of a horse. And, um, you know, um, you know, I would say if I knew that, you know, if, if I fell at fence five and, um, I knew going before going out that I was going to fall at fence five, I probably wouldn't go. So if I go to the fence and I fell at fence five, um, and even though I thought everything was just right, the, the result was that I fell, I either should have stayed at home or that wasn't what I thought was right was not right. Horses don't just fall down. Um, we're the one we, you know, we, uh, yeah, yes, there's bad luck here and there or whatever. And, um, and stuff like that. But I think admitting our mistakes and sort of understanding that horses generally do what we tell them to do, we can find, you know, fault in, in ourselves. Um, then, then we can fix ourselves. And when we fix ourselves, the horse usually follows. So, be pretty quick to blame myself for everything. And, um, I think that's how I've dealt, you know, dealt with it. And, um, but your nerves are, are normal. Um, but I think if you're scared, well, why, why would you do it if you're scared? <laughs> like right. It doesn't, you know, to me, scared is a negative thing. Um, nervous is a positive thing. You can turn that, those nerves into a positive energy that, it, that works for you. Um, but if you're scared, it just seems to me like, I don't know if I watch a scary movie or I go to a haunted house or something, all I want is out. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be scared. And if I'm scared, I do stupid things, you know? And, um, I think the same thing happens when you're riding. If you're scared, you lose your mind. Um, if you're nervous, it, it makes you focus. For people that want to get into eventing, what tips would you have for new eventers? Uh, enjoy it and, um, you know, take your time, you know, enjoy the, enjoy the whole process of it. As they say that, the the journey is always better than the destination anyway, <clears throat> but, um, you know, it's not to me, it's not about, you know, winning or losing to, to whether you move up or not. Um, but, um, the fastest way to do anything is go slow, you know, take your time and, you know, and listen to your horse and, uh, the horse <clears throat> always tells us what's going to happen. We just most of the time miss that. And so kind of listen to your horse and, you know, listen to, you know, find somebody that, is uh, that you can trust and put your faith in them is not just you know ju not just as a teacher but as a coach that can you know tell you the truth and um not just tell you to uh sit up straight put more leg on and where's my check and come back tomorrow and you look great you know somebody tells you how to get better and uh you know and um <clears throat> you know but enjoy that whole process and because um, it's a great sport it's a you know there's you know, we're so lucky to do what we do. The horses are amazing animals, but they need to be first and foremost taken care of rather than, you know, I think there's such an emphasis on everybody wanting to compete that, you know, nobody, um, people don't like to take care of the horses anymore. They don't want to muck their stall. They don't want to brush them. They don't want to clean the tack and all the stuff that goes along with it. And that, that's all part of it, in my opinion. You know, and if you don't enjoy that, then why would you do it? It's interesting you bring this up because obviously it's been a topic of conversation the last couple of years is uh, people, especially in eventing, pushing their horses and riding at levels they shouldn't be with that particular horse. Whether And in a lot of cases, the rider, the horse is fine at that level. It's the riders that are not. And we've seen that, right? We've mm -hmm. all seen that, especially at the lower level events. At, you know, a lot of them get carded. Uh, some don't, and you, you think they should. Is that something you have to deal with with your students? And, you know, are there some that just, I assume they're out there and their coach has either blessed it or not blessed it. And, uh, they're out there anyway at a level they shouldn't be at. And of course we've tried to address that in the sport. Of course they're, you know, of course that's something that, you know, I have to deal with. Look, I have to deal with it myself. I've made mistakes, right? I've moved up too fast and, 
and done the wrong thing. Like nobody's perfect, right? You sort of got to learn your boundaries by crossing them, right? And so, you know, I, I'm not going to put myself in a different league than everybody else. But um, as a coach, you know, I always preach safety, right? Like, and um, the safer you are, the better you are, the better you are, the more you're going to win. And you know, I, it drives me crazy to see people putting on the internet. I'm so proud of Susie Q that won this level. Um, well, first of all, it's one person's opinion on one day. The dressage judge thought you were good that day or whatever, and maybe nobody could catch you. And that doesn't mean you were the best one there. <clears throat> you know, you might have been scary, but you won. So to me, <clears throat> I'm not sure. I, I understand what everybody's trying to do and quantify this stuff. And, you know, if you do X number of, of these events, then you're ready to move up, you know, so that just gives people the sort of, okay, I've done this, so I can, I can move on. And in, in some ways, I think it's backfired. I remember when, when I was a kid and coming up to the levels, we didn't have any of that stuff, but it didn't seem like people were pushing so much to, you know, go faster and faster and faster. And, um, and I'm not sure that these MERs or whatever they're called, has that actually done the job? In some ways, it's almost taken, you know, sort of handcuffed the trainers a little bit because you say you're not ready. And then the student says, well, I've done this. They, it says I am. <clears throat> so, yeah, the rule book says you know, I am. Yeah. You know, as as as, I, as you get older and you, um, I'm fortunate to have students that I've had or that I have that have been with me for a long time. Um, they, <laughs> they apparently don't mind the truth. Um, and... Um, <laughs> And if, you know, and if somebody doesn't, you know, at the end of the day, what people don't understand about teaching riding lessons, I was just teaching a lesson a few minutes ago to a student. I just said to them, what they don't understand is how much time or hours I lose of sleep thinking about how I can make them better or how I can explain something differently or how I can do whatever. And what I can't deal with is, you know, the having somebody get hurt when you were pushing the envelope. So for me, I just say, you know what? If this is what you're going to do. There's always somebody else out there. Somebody else will take your money and let you train, you know, you, you can pay them so you can tell them what you want to do. Go for it. Um, but maybe, you know, I'm maybe fortunate um, in the position that I'm in, but uh, you know, certainly people, it's their living, right? So if it's Susie Q wants to go preliminary and you don't think she's ready, but Susie Q is going to go someplace else and you've got to put food on the table. Well, then you kind of go with Susie Q. You know, I think Susie Q is just as wrong at that point. <clears throat> you know, sometimes the trainer doesn't, doesn't have a say. Um, <clears throat> but for me, it's all about safety. Like <clears throat> I could care less whether you win or lose. I think I'm a little bit real about, you know, how important we are and how sometimes because you were fifth doesn't mean you were bad. And sometimes you won doesn't mean you were good. And um, so I think it's very important to have that relationship with the trainer that, that you trust and that is not just trying to, you know, pump you up so that you can just get blown up down the road. Well, I would hope that most people would then be looking for the trainer that they trust and then they trust when they're telling <laughs> them the truth and not just listening for what they want to hear. But I know another half of the equation is the horse. And once people have, you know, taken lessons and they've learned the basics and whatnot, and they're ready for their first eventing horse, what would they look for? What qualities would they look for in an eventing horse in order to work their way up the levels? One that has, you know, the uh, the brain, like the, the trainability is way more important. Trainability and reliability is way more important than ability. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, something that you know, got the brain to to handle what you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, if you're a nervous, excitable person, you probably need a, a quieter horse. If you're a quiet, more laid back person, you might need a more excited horse. And, um, you know, you need to kind of know, know your strengths and, and weaknesses. And if your strength is the dressage, and your weakness is the cross country. Well, don't go get yourself a great dressage horse and not a very good cross country horse. I get one that's better cross country horse and maybe needs more from the dressage. You know, so you've got to you've got to balance out your strengths um, and their strengths and weaknesses. And um, most horses, you know, have the ability well beyond what the rider has anyway. Um, and um, very few riders are so good that their horse isn't good enough. 
um, that t- that takes a long a long time to get there. I take it. Uh, are you looking at ponies for your your older daughter? Oh my god, daughter's got she's full up the ponies. She's got um, <clears throat> she um, Jan Benny is a great friend of uh, mine, and she worked for my dad um, when I was a kid and when I was in school. <clears throat> Jan used to ride my ponies. Um, called me and she said, "I have I have a pony that I want that I think would be great for your daughter. It reminds me of <laughs> Harry, which was my my pony." And she said, um, <clears throat> "So um, Jan was kind enough to." Give us um, her pony called Flea. The little uh, what a great name for a pony! pony. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he is, he's I don't know how old he is twenty twenty something, but he's gone preliminary. But my kid, uh, she <clears throat> cruises around and jumps over little things. And you know, oh wow! I can't we can't we can't get Aubrey to wear anything other than a dress. So she wears a dress <laughs> and cowboy boots, <clears throat> and off she goes. I love that. So she has that one, and then she. There's another pony here um, that she had that, you know, was, is really, really tiny. Um, and so we'll keep that. That one's awesome. And uh, is, her name is Prize. Well, and, you have uh, two Prize daughters, will... so you, eventually they can both ride yep, Prize together. Is, yep, Prize is going to be ready for Ellie. And then um, we actually have another pony, Aubrey rides sometimes. She, you know, her friends come and Aubrey's a bit like I was. Like she only wants to go fast and jump. And only wants to ride when her friends are riding. Otherwise, she really doesn't have much interest. But we are loaded with ponies. So if there are any kids that would like to come and ride with Aubrey, <laughs> we got plenty of ponies. And if and, we um, if we see a Disney princess riding around Pennsylvania, we'll know whose kid it is. Yes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's a little bit embarrassing, but Aubrey just. I mean, she just. Yeah, we go to soccer practice. And we're the only one wearing a dress. And we go to swimming, and we're wearing a dress. And we, I mean, we're we go to bed, we're wearing a dress. So, uh, Sugar <laughs> out of that um, soon anyway. enough. Yeah, <laughs> the next generation of Davidsons out there on the event yeah, course exactly. in a few years. They're going to have to change the dress code, yeah. though. It's going to their dresses are going to have to be allowed, or we're not going to have one. Cowboy boots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Can't exactly. Cowboy boots. <laughs> yep. If Aubrey has any say in it, and she's got her little. She got her, well, first she was into pink, so Charles Allen made her a nice pink helmet with her name on it. And then she, then they made her a, a black helmet with all these sparkles on it. So she likes, she likes sparkly things. So that, now she's got a sparkly helmet. So we're quite the picture out here. We're, uh, we're pretty funny. Well, I'm going to have to send you, uh, get your address and I'll send you young rider for her to start looking at. So Yeah, there you go. Awesome. Thanks, Buck. Well, thank you Appreciate so much it. for joining us. All right, guys. Take care. Take, take care, Buck. Our final guest, Milt Toby, is an attorney, photographer, and an award-winning author who has been writing about thoroughbred racing since 1972. He's written nine books and photographed more than 125 covers for Blood Horse magazine. Based in central Kentucky, Milt is past president of the American Society of Journalists and Authors. Well, welcome to the Horse Illustrated episode of Horses in the Morning, Milt. Thanks for having me, Sarah. We're going to talk about your books, but also the use of photography in the horse industry, because that is kind of a big topic I hear a lot about as an editor from like people wanting to know about how to use photos of their horse, or they've been to a show and there's a photos that they bought from the show photographer and whatnot. And then I hear the other side about like the usage of photos from photographers and you used to be a photographer. So um, as a photo- photographer who also knows the law really well, why is it so important for people to understand copyright law, especially in today's society of social media and sharing online? Well, it, it's important for what you just said, when you when you explain that you get one story from the the horse owner who wants to use the photograph, and you get another story from the photographer who's worried about the uses of the photograph, so it's important that everybody understand what's going on. You don't really need to understand the the nitty gritty of copyright law, but you do need to understand some basic things, and that's sort of what I want to talk about today, because the internet and social media has messed up everything. And it's messed up everything because copyright law hasn't caught up. It's years behind the times. But what's important to know, well, there are a couple of things. One thing is that we learned this in property 
law in law school, one of the very first things they told us is that, remember this, if something is mine, it isn't yours. And that's the way copyright works. If I'm writing an article, if I'm making a photograph, at the start of the process, I own all the copyrights. You don't own any of them, even if you're my client. And I transfer some or all of those rights to you. And if I have one understanding of what the rights are and you have another, then we've got a problem. I'll give you a really quick example. I'm a photographer. You're my client. You own a farm. You have a really nice stallion and you want some confirmation shots. You call, ask me to do that. I come out, take some nice photographs. And I tell you that I'm I'm doing these for your personal use only. And you say, oh, okay, that's fine. Personal use. Got it. You pay me. And a couple of months later, I see my photographs in an advertisement. My understanding as the photographer is personal use means you're going to take a copy of the photograph and hang it on your wall. Your understanding as my client is personal use means you can do whatever you want with it as long as you're doing it. So this is the issue. I, I understood that I was giving you personal use, which included nothing. Mm-hmm. You understood you were getting personal use, which included promotional use. So this is where the dispute comes up. I'm going to want more money the more uses you make of my photograph. So it's really important for everybody to be on the same page when you're hiring a photographer. For the photographer's sake, that's the way they make their living. You know, the, the more uses you're making of their photograph, the more they'll expect to get paid. You know, For a very long time in the pre-internet days, typically uh, photographers would go to a farm, do photographs of a stallion, photographs of yearlings for the sales, and it was just sort of an unwritten rule that they could do whatever they want with them. Mm-hmm. But the the internet has changed changed things. It's made it much easier for the photographer to show proofs to a client or at a horse show to show proofs to the exhibitors. But it's also made it much easier for the clients and the exhibitors to essentially steal the photographer's images off the internet. And the other thing that it's so important to remember is the internet hasn't changed anything about copyright law. People assume that. If an image or something that's written is posted on the internet, then it's uh, in the public domain. It's fair game, and it isn't. Mm -hmm. Just because I post a photograph on the internet, that doesn't change the fact that I still own all the copyrights. And if you take it off the internet, strip off the proof sign or my signature or whatever, and then post it yourself in an advertisement, you've stolen my property. So that, that's why it's so important for people to understand the basics. So everybody is on the same page. And so everybody comes out of the, you know, the business arrangement satisfied with the results. Well, and I think there's a lot of people that um, will see an image on the, on the web and it might be of, of say a horse they used to own or the sire of the horse. And they're like, Oh, I can just, grab this photo and use it, you know, how I want. Um, so clarity is key. And also always asking permission, I think, is, is a great option. Yeah, absolutely. And But one thing people need to remember, and I see this a lot, you'll, some, you'll see a, a photograph with something that's posted, and they will include a note that says, uh, I didn't take this photograph. That means you stole it. Right. Or it means that you didn't buy it. I don't you know, I don't, don't mean to, to say evil things about people using photographs, but you're doing that you're stealing the photograph. So yeah, it, it's because they don't understand how the internet works and how it works is it still deals with copyright law just like it did twenty five years ago. There's so many different ways that people can use photography or justify the use of something or, you know, want to use something. What's the biggest mistake you see horse owners make in regards to this? That's a good question because there are so many ways you can make mistakes. I think personally, and if anybody's heard my, my talks at American Horse Publications, I always encourage you to have a written contract. 
And that's the biggest mistake I see is that photographers don't have written contracts often and neither and clients don't insist on them. Mm-hmm. And if you have a written contract, generally things work out okay, even if you don't have one. But if you do, then you explain exactly what what rights you're transferring. In my you know, hypothetical a little while ago, if both parties signed a contract that said personal use is not promotional use, then you've eliminated the problem. Now, so I, I love people who have contracts. Now, what about if you think of a use that you didn't anticipate with the contract and, or you can no longer get a hold of the photographer or maybe they've passed away or maybe there's a photo that you don't know who took it. Are you just out of luck at that point? No, I I think that you need to do the best you can to track down who the photographer is and ask permission. Again, in my hypothetical, let's say that the client decides that the stallion is doing really well as a breeding animal and he wants to promote it with some of the confirmation shots. Mm-hmm. The, th- the first thing to do is to try and locate the photographer. And you have to do some due diligence here. But a lot of times, as you say, you can't do that. The the photographer may have died. The photographer may have moved. He may not be even doing photography anymore. So if you have made an honest due diligence effort, chances are you will be okay. But what you always have to know is you need to be able to prove that you've done this due diligence. For a photograph like that, chances are you aren't going to get sued. But you never know. You never know. We're in a litigious society right now. And forever, a a copyright lawsuit, an infringement lawsuit, has to be filed in federal court. And it's very expensive, and it takes forever. But there is a new law that was passed earlier this year called the CASE Act, which photographers and clients need to know about because it makes it a lot easier for a photographer who thinks there's been an infringement to file a lawsuit. It's sort of like a small claims court for minor copyright infringement cases. It isn't up and running yet, but when it is, it's going to make it much easier to file an infringement lawsuit. Now, that's interesting because as an editor, I try to keep, you know, up to date on all the laws and, you know, we have to be careful how we use, um, Photos in the magazine, obviously, and of course we have working relationships with all the photographers we use. But how how would someone keep up to date on the changes in the law? And like, you know, how would people know? That's a good question, and a lot of times they won't know. And one of the difficulties is there aren't copyright police who sort of look over things and say, "Oh, hey, I'll bet this is an infringement." and I'm going to investigate it. If you're the photographer and you don't protect your own rights, nobody else is going to. And if you're the client and the photographer doesn't object to what you're doing, even though it isn't part of the original deal, then you're pretty much home free. But you still need to do the diligence just to to verify that you tried to find out who the photographer is. Now, I think that can vary based on the photographer, too, and sometimes how much they've had this happen to them because I, I know a lot of photographers that have had things just swipe from them so often and they're just over it um yeah what's what's like the what are some of the consequences you've seen of people you know being sued from this and like what happens i don't know of any federal lawsuits for copyright infringement for horse photography that, that doesn't mean there haven't been any but i don't know I don't know of them, if there have. And usually that's because the money that's involved is so small that an attorney isn't going to take a federal lawsuit unless they figure to make a good bit of money off of it. And usually the damages aren't that high. But if, if the photographer has been careful to register the photographs with the copyright office, you know, the, the fines are statutory and sometimes can get up you know, over $100,000, but it's not going to happen very often. So mm-hmm. the consequences are fairly small other than the fact that if you get sued, you have to defend yourself, even if right. it's a frivolous lawsuit, and that gets expensive in federal court. And there's always that what if. What if you become the case that's you know, $100,000 exactly. in fines? Yeah. And, and, and this would apply a- to artwork as well, right? 
Yeah, artwork, uh, you know, statues, most anything. And mm-hmm. one of the other things to keep in mind, though, is in addition to copyright, there also are trademark issues, or there may be. You know, a secretariat's image may be trademarked in right. addition to the photographer having copyright questions. So it, it isn't a simple yes or no question when somebody says, can I use this photograph? You have to find out and at least try and ask permission. Can you explain the real briefly the difference between trademark and copyright or how someone can have both? Well, a copyright is protection for something that you have created, like a photograph or like a right. writing. Trademark is a law that is designed to prevent confusion uh, among people who are buying something. Like if you buy uh, a Coca-Cola with this this specific design of a a Coca-Cola bottle, that's a trademark. And you can be, or you can at least assume that this is a real Coke. So the, the trademark option may not be applicable very often, but it might be. Right. Again, it's something that you need to at least look at, particularly if it's a, a, a f- very famous horse like Secretariat. Chances are there's a, there might be a trademark issue there. You know, there's a lot of Secretariat uh, merchandise that's being sold with images of Secretariat, and the image might be a copyright problem. It might also be a trademark problem. Yeah, so don't just also go taking photos and then think you can put it on a T-shirt and sell them. That's right. So um, before we talk about your books real quick, if somebody wants to find out more information about this type of topic, uh, where would you suggest they go? I would suggest they find an attorney who who is familiar with copyright and preferably an attorney who's familiar with copyright and familiar with the horse business. So they will know the issues that are likely to come up. There also are a lot of, of reputable sources on the Internet. Some are better than others, but everything on the internet, no matter how reputable it sounds, you need to take with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. So you've had so many different professional and creative pursuits with law, photography, writing. Um, How have these intertwined in your life? Um, That's a a complicated question. (laughs) Because the only constant that has run through all of the things, and you know, it's really six or seven careers, depending on how you count. But the right. one thing that has, has been constant through all of those is horses, and, mm-hmm. and primarily thoroughbreds. And so, so that's it. Yeah, I, I grew up with show horses, American saddlebreds, but I started working, writing about thoroughbreds right out of college. I worked for a newspaper in South Carolina in Aiken for a year and then came to work at the Blood Horse through the from the early 70s through the mid 80s. Then I lived overseas for a while, for six years doing news photography. But I also went to the races. Yeah, I, I, I published stories about racing in Hong Kong and Manila and Thailand and a lot of places in Central and South America when I was there. Came back to the U.S. and went to law school, still did some freelancing. Uh, after law school, I set up a practice, didn't do a whole lot of equine law, but I still continued to write about legal issues in the horse business. Then I spent two years as the director of the equine division at Midway University, which is, again, another horse thing. After that, I taught equine law, and I still teach equine law at the University of Louisville's equine industry program, the College of Business. So I've done a lot of different things, but at the the basis of all of them has been oh, horses primarily racing. Now, with our intro, we mentioned the different books you've written. What? How have you chosen the subjects for your various books? A couple of ways. One of them is when a publisher has asked me to write a book about something, uh, like an equine law book that I did for the Eclipse Press when that was still mm-hmm. up and running. But for things that I've generated, I look for stories that people think that they know, but they don't really And um, an example is uh, I did a a trilogy of books for the history press about uh, derby winners and famous horses. The first one of those was a book about Dancer's image and his disqualification in the 1968 Kentucky Derby. And that one won the Dr. Tony Ryan Book Award in 2011. 
But people now hear the name Dancer's Image and they think, oh, yeah, that horse got disqualified for a drug positive. But they don't know what happened. They don't know the backstory. And that's what the book was. The book was about the backstory. And that's the same with with other books. My most recent book that the University Press of Kentucky published was called Taking Shergar, Thoroughbred Racing's Most Famous Cold Case. It was about a very famous thoroughbred stallion that was stolen by the Irish Republican Army and held for ransom. He wasn't ever recovered, and the ransom never was paid. And people now, you mentioned Shergar, they say, oh, yeah, he was stolen, stolen by somebody over in Ireland. But they don't know the backstory either. And, And that, for me, was much more interesting than the story of the theft itself. So I'm looking for stories that people think they know, but they don't really. And there are a lot of those out there. Are you writing one now or are you on hiatus? Uh, no, I'm working on one now. It's a second book that I'm doing for the University of Press of Kentucky. It's a social history of performance-enhancing drugs in thoroughbred racing. Oh, wow. That'll, that'll be an entertaining So it's a, it's a humor book you're writing. <laughs> uh, in, <laughs> in a way. In a way. <laughs> That's a deep one, especially a poignant right now. It really is. And you know, that's the only problem with writing a book as opposed to covering breaking news, because the, the book will probably not come out until the fall of 2022 and maybe the spring of 2023. You know, it, it's a, a tedious process, especially with a year of pandemic when all the archives, the National Archives and Libraries I needed to visit were closed for almost for mm-hmm. a year. Mm-hmm. So that, that cut into the research time. So. Well, then again, yeah, maybe we'll by get... then the uh, Kentucky Derby have decided what they're going to do with this one. But, you know, based on Dancer's Image, I doubt if they'll get it done that quick. Because mm. mm. with Dancer's Image, it was over four years with all the litigation before Calumet finally got the trophy for forward pass. Wow. Is it hard to write these historical books? I mean, you, you've gone back, what, as far as 1968 and I I don't know the exact years of Shergar, but... Um. Yeah, well, Dancer's Image was 1968. Shergar was 1983. The The social history of performance-enhancing drugs starts in 1890. Yeah, that's so, yeah, one way back. I, I've got six legal-sized boxes of research stuff sitting in my garage. And the stone and, and the stone tablets are on the other side. That's uh, Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, I've been gathering this, this stuff for years. <laughs> I mean, really, if you take a look at it, they've probably been doing the same. In the Roman times, they were probably drugging horses somehow. They I mean, were, not not with the, the things that are being used now. Today, but, yeah, no. There's but, al- <laughs> but there's always been a, a need, if you are a horse owner, and, and if you have horses, there's going to be races. And if there are races, there's going to be people who cheat. Mm. And and the way that you cheat changes as we move up from 1890 to, to now. But it, it's the same principle. It's getting an edge. All right. Yeah. yeah. It's just well, our understanding of the drug has gotten more sophisticated. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, you, in the, the 1890s, they were making the change from whiskey to uh, cocaine and heroin and morphine. Wow. And and then in the in the 40s, they began switching to synthetic yeah, but, drugs. But before we go beyond that, I mean, back then, too, they were, you know, there were people selling elixirs with cocaine in it. I mean, it, it, it oh, was, yeah. you know, people didn't understand really what what it was back then yeah and and it wasn't illegal to to sell you know these drugs over the counter until 1914 yeah and it also wasn't illegal to dope horses there you go (laughs) there you go we'll have to have you on after the release of your book to talk about this topic a little more because i'm sure you could go very in depth on it i would love to so well thank you so much for your time today and uh We'll have to um, keep an eye out for your next book. Sounds good. I appreciate being on on with you guys. Where, what's the website, Milt? It is www.miltoncetoby.com. And we'll put a link to that in our show notes as well. Thanks, Milt. Well, what a fantastic lineup of guests. As always, Sarah, you're always putting the best guests together. And now I'm excited that I might get to see Buck this week. That's so cool. We're going to definitely look him up if we're going to be five minutes from his farm. Uh, And also tomorrow we have Jamie back, and we'll be doing a show from the road again. We have uh, like a 
two weeks left, I think, or a week and a half left. So hopefully all goes well, and we'll have Jamie back tomorrow. Uh, also, we need to thank our sponsors. Yes. As always, we want to thank our title sponsor, the Straight Arrow family of brands, makers of Mane and Tail, Cowboy Magic, and Exhibitors, with over 100 years of grooming excellence. For more information about your favorite products, please visit straightarrowinc.com and find them at a tack shop near you. Horse Illustrated can be found at horseillustrated.com. And you can find the links to today's guest in the show notes at horsesinthemorning.com or horseillustrated.com slash podcast. You can follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook. Just search for Horses in the Morning. And you can have all of the Horse Radio Network shows with you wherever you go with the free app for iPhone or Android. Go to your app store and just search for Horse Radio Network. Happy reading and riding. Happy reading and riding.